God's Word, take one of the ones in the chairs in front of you. We would love for you to, uh, to have that. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going we're gonna to finish up Matthew chapter 9 today and work our way into chapter 10, trying to, uh, to push myself further and, and further uh, into the, the book and, and not to uh, take the next 10 years or however long it might be to get through the book. I was encouraged a couple of weeks ago. I asked somebody, how many, how many sermons do you think uh, that I've preached in the book of Matthew? And the answer was, oh, I think probably somewhere around 18. Well, that was encouraging to me because uh, today is number 37. So uh, it maybe, maybe it doesn't seem like we're dragging on so incredibly slowly. But follow along with me as I read to you Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 35 and work our way through chapter 10, verse 4. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him, and he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these: first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is in uh, many ways what we've been building up to in this section of the book of Matthew. Uh, and I want us to consider uh, two contexts today before we dig into the text. I want us to understand the larger context of where these verses fit into Matthew. And then I want us to understand more of the immediate context. Um, Jesus has been displaying for us his, uh, looking at the larger context, he's been displaying for us his power over all things. And if you've been here, you've seen that he's in charge of people and disciples and nations and storms and disease and all kinds of things. And there's all these miracles, nine of them in fact, that Matthew puts in here, three groups of three, kind of each showing us something different about who Jesus is, but all of them together showing us how Jesus is in control of all things and is author, uh, authorized by God to be the one to come and tell us how we might be forgiven of our sins and enter into his kingdom. After displaying all of this power over all things, he calls Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, who's in his tax booth, and he gets up and he follows Jesus. He takes action. He doesn't sit there. He, he repents of his sin. He repents of his wrongdoing, and he follows after Jesus. To put it in the words that we sung this morning, he found Jesus to be enough, enough to leave the tax booth. Enough to leave everything behind. Enough to call his sinner friends and invite them to a meal at his house and to introduce Jesus to them. That, that calling of Matthew stood in contrast to a couple of would-be disciples who promised that they would follow Jesus anywhere. But when Jesus reminds them 
that he really has to be found enough, more than homes, more than family, if you're going to follow after me, he tells these two men, you have to find me worthy or enough over all things. And so in this big picture, we see that Jesus has all authority to call those who follow him to, to follow him in this way. He has the authority not only to, uh, to, to call people to him, but it must be under uh, his terms that we come to him. And what, he, what we find is that when we do, he, he takes our life and he orients it on a mission. Ultimately, when we find Jesus to be enough in this life and the next, he sets us, well, again, on mission. He gives us a ministry. Immediately, Matthew, after leaving the tax booth, calls his friends to a meal while, where they meet Jesus. He puts us on what we call, uh, the, what I'm going to call today, the Great Commission mission. And, and, what, and, and his way, his terms, when we come to him, when we find him to be enough, is that we would then go and call others to follow him as well. I uh, got a question from uh, somebody who's going to be leading the, the book I suggested um, in, in his growth group this week. And the question was, is the Great Commission found in Matthew 28? This is uh, after the resurrection. It's where the book of Matthew is going to close for us. It, it's how Matthew summarizes everything he tells us. And, and what he says there is that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, all authority has, on, under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore... Because all authority has been given to me, you are to go, that's a command, uh, we could talk technically about that all day, but there's a couple of commands there, and they are to go and to make disciples. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have taught you. The, the first two things there, the first two verbs are the imperatives, Go and make disciples. The second two are what it means to make disciples. You baptize them and you teach them to obey. Here was the question that came to me. The question was, is this command for all believers or is it just for the 12 and for some believers? And I think the key to understanding that, and it has basically universally been understood by the church to be a command to all believers. The reason for this is what the call is. The call is to go make disciples. He doesn't say go make believers, some of whom will be evangelists, some of whom will not, some of whom I'll send on missions, some of whom I will not. No, he says go make disciples. And what disciples are, by very definition, is people who are trained to do what their rabbi, what their teacher did. And so Jesus calls, as we see here today in our text, these 12 men to himself, and he calls them his disciples. They're the ones who are to carry on his work in his absence. He clearly understands he's going to be going to the cross, and so he gathers these 12 men and he, he spends three years training them to do what he had done. And then he tells them to go make disciples, which means those disciples will do the same thing as their rabbis, their mentors, 
They're, they're disciple makers, whatever we want to call them today. And then they'll make disciples, and those disciples will make disciples, and those disciples will make disciples. Disciples inherently, by very definition, must make disciples. And so this idea that the 12 would go and make disciples means that every believer is a disciple who makes disciples. It's kind of just built into it. It's, it's for every believer. I find it very interesting, by the way, and we're going to see this more and more from this point in Matthew on. I, I find it very um, interesting, Jesus' method of ministry. In many ways, I think we've abandoned it in the church today. Uh, and it's really got me thinking, honestly. It's challenging my own thinking in terms of what ministry looks like. He calls these 12 and he sends them out to teach a message that they don't fully yet understand. And then when they come back with questions, he instructs them. What he doesn't do is start a class whereby he instructs them and then sends them out on mission. Nothing wrong with classes. He kind of does that. There's lots of, of times when Jesus takes the disciples and he has teaching sessions just with them. But he doesn't start with instruction and then three years down the road set them on mission. He launches both simultaneously. The moment they believe, he begins to instruct them and he sends them out to do the work of the ministry. If we were to... I mean, we see this right here. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, this will be our text next week. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the household of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls these 12 and immediately he sends them out to tell people about the kingdom. Certainly they've got questions. Certainly they don't have all the answers. What they do have is an understanding, a basic understanding of who Jesus is, and he sends them out instantly to, to tell them, or, or to, uh, to, for them to tell others about who he is. It starts right away. I think maybe what happens is we, uh, we get so comfortable in our classes and in our learning and in our groups and inside the church, that we begin to forget that the task of growing in maturity and helping others to grow in maturity, they just they come side by side. Immediately, we're to help others in their walk, whether that means, I think maybe especially that means, uh, those who don't yet know Jesus. He sets us, he sends us out sets us on mission immediately, as soon as we're believers. That's the big context. He's got all authority, and we are to therefore go. This, this is not the Great Commission necessarily. We see that in Matthew 28. We often call that the Great Commission. But, that, but, but what we see very clearly is that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is a summary of where we've been in the last uh, two chapters and now into our third. That Jesus is calling those who would follow him and would find them enough to be on mission. Now, uh, let's zoom in maybe and consider the immediate context. And I think this text 
is really, really important for us today in our day and age. I've been very clear, and I've been talking a lot lately, uh, about how the church is moving out of favor with the culture. Like, this is not a surprise to any of us, right? I think, I think you know, I'm 45. I can remember a day when church was a positive thing. I can remember a day when public schools uh, didn't plan things on Wednesday nights because they figured people were going to be in church with their families. I grew up going to Sunday morning services, Sunday night services, and Wednesday night ministry activities. I think probably many of us could remember when, you know, uh, when advertising your faith as a believer may have been good for your business. Today, we're seeing it all over the world if we're not paying attention. Today, you can be fired for it. We're seeing it in the headlines all over the place. That, that just an association to a church can get you fired. The culture used to see the church as a positive thing. And in that environment, the, the evangelism of the church, this Great Commission mission, um, worked really well surrounding church activity. You did lots of activities inside the church, and, and in those activities, people would come. Again, I, I know I've said this before, but how many of you told me that your story of how you became a believer was your parents who weren't believers took you to church because they thought it was a good idea? Like you can do stuff inside the church in that environment and, 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 and people will bring their kids whether they believe or not. People hear about church activities and, and they go. People less and less do that. The, the, the unbelievers, they, they don't even show up that much on Christmas and Easter anymore. And the culture kind of slowly moved to, to one of ambiguity. Where the church wasn't bad, it just also wasn't good either. And, and even in that environment, it wasn't too hard to get people in. Because at least the church wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was, it was a, a no thing. It wasn't good, it wasn't bad. So if you invite me, I might come. And still, activity inside the church... You know, um, program-based evangelism, activity-based evangelism, it, it still worked. But we're, we're in a day and age when, uh, when the church is more and more and more all the time being seen not as just ambiguous, but bad. If you're not paying attention to the culture, particularly the cultural elites, the church is seen as a bad thing. What this does is really takes us, who grew up maybe in a different environment, to a place of discomfort. We're like, I, I'm worried about this. You know, this, this isn't what I'm used to. What's the future of the church going to look like? What's the future of our nation going to look like? What's the future of uh, my kids going to look like? We begin wondering all of these things. But in reality... Where we're moving to as, an, as a nation and, and, and the culture that the church is living in is really, we're just moving into what's normal for the vast majority of the history of the church. 
And so while many of us are looking around going, I don't know what to do, I take great comfort in the fact that God does. God knows how to care for his church in cultures that oppose it. It's no new thing. It's just new to us. And so while I don't like the fact that that's where we're moving, as, a, as, a, as, as our position in the culture around us, while that's uncomfortable for me, and, and while it's a little scary for me too, for sure, I take great comfort in knowing that we're, we're really just moving into the territory where God has cared for his church for the vast majority of the church's history throughout the world. And so I don't have to be overly afraid. Why do I bring all that up today? Well, I, I think... I think we find some great encouragement here in this text to see that that's the environment in which Jesus is doing ministry. Look at the, uh, the verse immediately preceding our text today. We looked at this last week, verse 34, actually maybe two weeks ago. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus is going about, he's healing He's doing miracles, blind can see, lame can walk, the dead rise, the sick are healed. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God on earth, and they're seeing it in terms of all of these healings. And the response from the culture is, oh, he's just doing this by the power of Satan. In other words, this is evil. They understand him, his ministry, and his message to be something evil and nefarious in the culture. Jesus is doing ministry in a culture, religious as it might be, that's kind of like where we are today. And so the question before us is, what do we do? Well, we should probably do what Jesus did, because what he does is he just keeps doing good. He just keeps doing the right thing, keeps healing people, keeps loving people, keeps feeding people, keeps preaching the good news, keeps confronting false uh, knowledge and information that stands up against him. And we can see, look with me at verse 35, that it's connected because they accuse him of being evil, of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And what's the first word of verse 35? You can answer that question. And, and if we have any English majors in here, what kind of word is and? It's, I, heard, I heard it over here somewhere. Who said that? It's a conjunction. Oh, leave it to a teacher. It's a conjunction. And what do conjunctions do? You know, conjunction, junction. What's your function, right? What, what's the function of a conjunction? It connects two things. Matthew is connecting what we're seeing in Jesus today to what happened immediately before. He's been accused of evil. He's been accused of, of doing the wrong things or doing the right things with the wrong motives and by the wrong power. And he's seen as evil and. And because of that, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. He just keeps doing the right thing. He just keeps doing good. 
He's not dissuaded at all by the perspective of the culture around him. He's, he's just, he's on a mission from God. A great commission mission. So I want to look at that this morning. So number one on your outline there is the work of the Great Commission. The work of the Great Commission. We see if disciples do what their teachers did, and Jesus taught the disciples who taught their disciples, and 2,000 years later, here we are, disciples of somebody else who discipled us, who was a disciple of somebody else, going all the way back to Jesus. You're here because for 2,000 years, people have taken seriously the call to tell people about Jesus, to be disciple makers, to live out the Great Commission. And so the work of the Great Commission is to just keep, keep at it, keep doing good. I want to make three observations about that verse, about this verse, about what Jesus does in response. Notice it says, verse 35, and Jesus went. He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Notice that what he doesn't do is wait for them to come to him. He doesn't say, well, my response is going to be to Preach the gospel at all times by how I live and and just use words if necessary. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to be the hardest worker. I'm going to be the best worker. Never going to tell anybody about Jesus. But if I just live nice enough, then people are going to come to me and ask me what's different about me. No, he goes to where they are. He goes to their cities. He goes to their villages. He goes to their synagogues. So first, he went to where people were were. Secondly, he teaches them. He teaches them. And thirdly, I'm going to just go ahead and combine these. He preaches to them. Now, I've heard every variety of definition of what teaching and preaching is. I've had people come to me and say, oh man, I appreciate the fact that you're a teacher and not just a preacher. Next week, somebody will come up to me and say, oh, I appreciate the fact that you're a preacher and not a teacher. And I'm like, I don't know what, what the heck you're talking about here because, you know, we, I don't think we really have an, a good understanding of what the definitions of teach and preach are. But I think what Matthew's getting at here based upon the words that he uses is, is twofold, and I want to I look at them. First, Jesus goes to where they are. He goes to their cities. He goes to their villages. He goes to their synagogues, their places of worship. And he teaches them. He tells them what they need to know. That's what teaching is. It's giving information. What do people know? Well, they need to know four things. God, man, Jesus, response. They need to know that God is a holy God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who by no means will clear the guilty, and that man is guilty, guilty of sin before God. But Jesus came to take our guilt. We sang that this morning as well, the great exchange. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm forgiven, you were forsaken. Jesus takes the consequence of our guilt, and we respond through faith and repentance, which is just two sides of the same coin. Um, Come on a Wednesday night and ask one of the Awana teachers for the Awana wheel if you want to see this 
visually, if you're a visual learner. But the reality is, we need to, everybody needs to know those four things. God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus has taken our consequence, and we respond in, uh, to him in faith by, by finding him to be enough. That's what faith is. Repentance, it's the, it's the, it's the same thing. It's, it's finding Jesus enough to turn away from the things that will never satisfy. What is, what is it that, what is preaching? What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, well, teaching gives them the information they need to know. Preaching calls them to do something about it, to make a response, to, to have faith, to actually repent. And so the work of the Great Commission is to go where people are, to tell them what they need to know, and then to persuade or attempt to persuade them to respond in faith and repentance. This is the work of the Great Commission. It's, it's, the, it's the mission that every single one of us, the moment we believe, was set on. We go to where people are, we tell them about who Jesus is, and we call them to respond in faith and repentance. That's the work of the Great Commission. But we don't just see what Jesus is doing. We don't just see the work of the mission that he's about to set these 12 disciples on, and you and me as well. We also see the heart of the Great Commission. Verse 36. As he's going through all these cities and villages and towns and synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The heart of the Great Commission is compassion for the lost. It, it, it's, it's a, uh, the, the root word here is, is bowels. It's, it's a deep feeling in the gut. It's, it's a deep concern that Jesus has for these people. And, and this, this concern he has for them is for two reasons. First, they were harassed. I think what this is getting at is that, that they're, I, I don't think Jesus is accusing every spiritual leader outside of him to be uh, abusive in terms of their demeanor or, you know, I, I don't think he's saying they, they had ill will towards people. I think what Jesus is getting at is they were misinformed. They, they didn't know the truth. They needed somebody to teach them. Their, their, their guides who were supposed to, who claimed to have sight, as we see in the Old Testament, were blind guides themselves. And, and so they didn't have access to their own scriptures. Scripture was much more common in a household even 40 years ago than it is today. Most people today, we, I mean, when you talk of Jesus and Christians in the Bible, the vast majority of people you talk to today aren't going to know what, what those things are, not with any degree of truth. They were harassed, misinformed by their leaders, didn't know the right things. And second, they were helpless. They didn't have access to God's word and they didn't have anybody to tell them the truth. So I think the question before us is as we look at the world around us, and we see it doing what the world does, moving further and further away from God. As, as we see, whether, whether it's, it's evident in whatever we think about politics or the education system or, or whatever it is that concerns us today, 
as we look at the world around us and we see people acting like they don't know the truth and they don't have anyone to help them guide them to the truth, what's our response? Do we look around and say, man, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I need to find a bunker to hide in, to protect myself from, from them. I need to find places where they can't get to me. Or, or are we deeply moved by compassion because they're like sheep without shepherds? They don't know where to go. They don't know how to find food. If a shepherd doesn't move sheep, once they hit the bottom of the grass, they'll just start eating dirt. Sheep without shepherds doesn't go very well. They need somebody to lead them to where there is nourishment, where there is water, where there is uh, goats, on the other hand. They can find anything to eat on their own. Those images aren't accidental. But are we moved by compassion? Or are we scared of the threat? Are we... Are we so concerned about how unbelievers act that that we stop remembering about the condition of their soul? By the way, when they act like sinners, when sinners act like sinners, they're not being hypocrites. When Christians act like sinners, they are. When we hide and refuse to have compassion for the lost, We are. They're just acting according to their nature. And and whatever their chosen sin is, whatever sin it is they struggle with, I'm not suggesting that we don't care about the fact that they're stuck in sin, but I am suggesting that, that the first order of business is to introduce them to Jesus, not to get them to stop sinning. Because without Jesus, it's never gonna happen. No matter what laws we pass, no matter who gets elected, only Jesus changes hearts. And so our first order of business is to introduce them to him, to teach them what they need to know, and and to to invite them to, uh, to a relationship with him. It's a true story, so forgive me if it bothers you, uh, but I remember growing up, was going to church. That's what we did. My pastor was preaching a sermon, probably on the Great Commission. And, uh, and I'll never forget this moment. Because as he's preaching now, and he, was, he was a pretty um, formal guy. He wore a suit every Sunday. You know, there was not a Sunday that I didn't see uh, my pastor not in a suit. And so he, you know, um, you, can, you can draw the image uh, of this guy from, from there. But he was preaching one Sunday, and he made the statement, he said that there are people outside the church who are going to hell, and some of you don't give a damn. And then he said, and many of you are probably more concerned that I just said damn than that I said there are people who are going to hell. And I was that person. 
I was shocked. Did he just say that? He can't say that. I was far more concerned that he said damned than that, damned than that he said people are damned. I'll never forget that moment. That there are people out there who don't know Jesus. Is, is, our, is our move towards them one of compassion? Thirdly, we see the urgency of the Great Commission. We see the urgency of the Great Commission. Look with me at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, if there's one thing that I've learned uh, about harvest living in this area, it's this. When it's time to harvest, it's time to harvest. The difference between a pea field that's ready to harvest and a pea field that's burnt up and gone is 24 hours. You get to it or it's gone. Wheat farmers, they got a little more time, but I'm seeing more and more urgency in them as there's falling prices, and the longer the wheat sits in the field, the less they get paid for it. There's urgency to a harvest, and the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, here's, not, here's what I think Jesus is getting at and what I don't think he's getting at. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, there's a few people in the church who are evangelists and they have a lot of work to do. No, I think he's saying there's 12 of you and a whole nation. I think he's saying the church is smaller than the world. It's not that there's a few workers inside the church. It's that the church is all the workers. And we're outnumbered. And so there's, there's urgency. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What do you do when you need more laborers? You go ask people to get to work. And how do we go and invite people to be on mission? We invite them to know Jesus because the day that they come to know Jesus is the day they get their great commission, mission, commission. It's a mouthful. But it's true. What do you do, by the way, when, when you're desperate? When, when the situation seems hopeless, when you're outnumbered, when, when there's way too much to do and you're stressed and the task is big before you, what do you do? What was that? Pray. That was you, Dan? Sorry, I thought that was you, Jared. Jared's like, why are you pointing at me, man? <laughs> That's right. We pray, don't we? Look at verse 30, 36, or 38, I'm sorry. Therefore, be, because the harvest is plentiful and laborers are few, therefore, pray earnestly, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's urgent. There's a harvest. There's not enough workers. You're not sufficient for the task. Pray and, and go do it. Pray earnestly. 
One of the things I've learned over the years is it's really, really hard to pray that God would do something and be unwilling to be part of his answer to that prayer. It's really, really hard to pray that God would send out laborers into the harvest um, and, and, and not be willing to go. And I know what you're thinking, okay? Well, then I'm just not going to pray because that's scary. And if I don't pray, then I won't go. If I don't pray and I don't go, then I'll be safe. Let me just remind you that Jonah's disobedience led him to less safe places, not more safe places. The safest place to be is always in God's will. And when we're outside of God's will, we can... We can see just how unsafe that is sometimes. And so we're, we're to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, we got to move fast here. But this is really encouraging because what we see here, fourthly, is the workers of the Great Commission. He calls to himself 12 disciples and gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And then we get the names of the apostles. And I'm going to move fast here. So maybe you'll find this encouraging. I certainly did. Who does Jesus call to do the work of the ministry? Well, he calls Peter. Peter's inquisitive. He's always asking questions. He he takes initiative. He's always in the middle of everything. That's good. But Peter has to learn some lessons in humility. And he learns them the hard way. Another sermon I'll never forget. Here's a golden nugget for you. This one was uh, at our church in Hillsborough. Uh, the preacher said, humility comes best through humiliation. Oof. He had to learn forgiveness. He had to learn love. And he learned them slowly. He had a foot-shaped mouth. Like, it, his mouth was just made for his foot. and He was always sticking it in it. He starts out pretty cowardly, denying Christ. And then afterwards, he just goes back to fishing. But here he is. Andrew, I don't see Andrew here this morning. That's unfortunate because, uh, do we have some other Andrew? No, I don't think we have any Andrews here today. I learned Andrew means manly. So if your name's Andrew, good for you. Unless you're a lady. And then I don't know why your name's Andrew, but... Hey, um, he was a fisherman, like his brother, and uh, like many of the disciples, the only person who mentions them is John. The only person who mentions Andrew is John. He started out as a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, he, he displays some faith along the way by bringing the boy with loaves and fishes to Jesus, from, from which uh, um, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, he never seems to seek the limelight. He's willing to kind of live in his brother's shadow. We, we don't know a whole lot about him. He was a quiet, kind of a background guy. But Jesus called him. There was James, who never appears apart from John. Um, he's, he's pretty impetuous, maybe prone to violence, Uh, Let's remember that it was James and John who, upon being denied lodging by a Samaritan, look at Jesus and say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? His mom, 
brought him and his brother along to Jesus. I can just see the picture, you know, Jewish mom dragging her sons by the, the hands to Jesus and says, hey, in your kingdom, can these two guys sit one on the right and one on the left? Moms, don't be that mom. Like, I feel bad for these guys. That's recorded in scripture. He's, uh, he's as one author described him, brazenly ambitious. And apparently God used him mightily enough even though we don't hear much about him, that in Acts 12, when the Herod at the time decides to start putting uh, some people to death, he puts him to death first. And when he sees the response of the people, then he goes to kill others as well. So apparently this guy was a threat to worldly kingdoms. There's John, who clearly became, as we see him at the end of his life, pretty gentle, but once again starts out by asking Jesus to call down fire from heaven. He seems to be uh, zealous and angry and explosive early on in his ministry, and then he writes 1 John, a book that's rife with brotherly love and how to, how to interact with the saints. There's Philip. Philip was the first person to be called by Jesus. He appeared to be knowledgeable in the scriptures, looking for the Messiah. And as soon as he finds the Messiah, he understands his mission. He goes and he gets Nathaniel. But when it comes time to feed the 5,000, he looks at Jesus and says, well, even if we have 200 denarii, that's like a year's worth of working. Even if we have 200 denarii, we, we couldn't feed this many people. And so he's, he's prone to doubt. And yet, here he is. There's Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, who's prejudiced. Philip comes to him and says, hey, look, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, Bartholomew, whichever you want to call him, looks at, looks at his brother and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? A little racist, right? But here he is. That's uh, prejudice, by the way. It's always rooted in a feeling of superiority. But Jesus calls him. Thomas, Thomas is known for doubting everything, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. I, I, it's maybe a proneness to look at the negative because he's also the one when Jesus decides who goes to Jerusalem, looks at the rest of the disciples and says, well, let's go with him and we'll just die too. He's loyal, he's brave, but he doubts there's Matthew, who's a tax collector. What else do you need to know? Part of the, the Jewish writings talk about how it's a virtuous thing to, to do evil to a tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, is obscure. We know almost nothing about him. Probably not a good teacher. Probably not a good leader. He's just utterly unextraordinary. And 1 Corinthians is pretty clear that that's God's favorite people to use. He, he loves to use the unextraordinary to do extraordinary things. There's, there's Thaddeus, whose name I won't go into the meaning of because in our culture it would sound weird and we would think it may be mocking, but, but really what it tells us about him is he had a big heart. But, I, I, I mean, maybe he struggled a little bit with... Um, with what we would call, despite my last sermon, self-esteem, because in the upper room, he wonders, why, why is Jesus disclosing himself, showing who he is to the likes of us? There's Simon the Zealot, 
The zealot was a uh, political affiliation, so he's a politician. Again, what else do you need to know? And lastly, there's Judas. Judas, a thief. Progressively rejected Jesus, ultimately betrayed him, pretty clearly not a believer, wasted gospel opportunities, wasted privilege, loved money, but also displays the patient love of God to us. These are the guys he chose. Not the best rabbi, not the wealthiest, impetuous, racist, violent, unspectacular, obscure guys. We're all in there somewhere. Because the power of the ministry, this mission that we're called on, it's not in us. It's not in us. And he wants to take a a ragtag group of people like you and me and set us on mission to do amazing things through us. There's a mission. We're We're all on it. And it's hard And it's a little bit scary, but it isn't dependent upon us. Lord, thank you for using men like this who who give uh, encouragement to impetuous, foot-shaped, mouthed people like me. Lord, it's not because of our strength. It's not because of our might. It's not because of our skill. It's not because of anything in us that you call us to to do the work of the ministry. And, And you're not depending upon us. We're dependent upon you. And so by your Spirit, would you make us bold? Would you make us willing? Would you make us available? Would you you make us compassionate? That we might go out and tell others who you are and what you have done for their good and for your glory. Amen.